you're listening to the WISE Spotlight series, where we'll be interviewing female trailblazers across various STEM fields. Aleka and Cooper will be your hosts for this episode, featuring Genevieve Pizzola, a civil engineer who works to protect soldiers on the front lines. So could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm Genevieve Pizzola. I am a research civil engineer. I work for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Engineer Research and Development Center, or ERDIC, in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And I've been working there for about two years in the survivability engineering branch, where mainly I've been working on characterizing blast and weapons effects and figuring out ways that we can provide expedient passive protection solutions to the warfighter to help mitigate blast and weapons effects. Okay, so for the general person, could you explain a little bit more about your work and what that Sure. <laughs> um, so I, we do a lot of research and trying to understand if a terrorist threat goes off or if an adversary's military forces attack our military forces, what happens? So what is that? loading from the blast or weapon look like? What are the fragment effects um, from that threat? Once we can understand what those loadings are like and what those threats actually do to either people or buildings or barriers, then we can try and either improve those, um, like what people are wearing or the barriers or the buildings that they're in, or what I mainly work on is we uh, develop these kitted solutions. So they come in like a container and they're for certain problems. Um, so it's either like building a retrofit in a building quickly and rapidly and intuitively for soldiers so that they can increase the building's level of protection against blast and weapons. So usually when a blast goes off um, from a building or outside of a building, usually the walls will fail and blow into the building, potentially killing occupants. So something that I've worked on is a expedient retrofit where it catches those blocks or whatever the wall is made out of and it catches them and prevents them from entering the room. So thereby saving lives. So that's one example. That's really insane. <laughs> So what kind of like experiments do you do and like how do you collect data in the field and stuff like that? So um, I've done a range of different experiments. The major experiments or main types of experiments I've done is we will build a bomb um, uh, and we will build it in a very methodical way so that we can it's, it's kind of a mix between academia and then real world field, right? So if we're concerned about a terrorist threat, there's a lot of groups that really study how to characterize terrorist threats. So they'll build a range of improvised explosive devices or IEDs and try to characterize that, but we more so are on the protective side. So we'll just build a bomb that we think we understand really well. And then um, we will put it next to one of the things I'm working on is a 
fast running application that soldiers can use where they say, okay, I'm in this kind of building. This is the threat I'm concerned about. And the app will not only say, okay, does the wall fall down? It'll say, this is the speed of which the wall fails and what's coming into the room. And it'll spit out a curve that says, okay, your probability of lethality at 20 feet is let's say 50%, but at 50 feet, it's like 1%. So if you guys are in a room where you can be 50 feet back, you should be okay. Um, so what we do is we put a bunch of pressure gauges around the walls that we're looking at for this app. And we put pressure gauges um, near the bomb as well. And then we take that pressure data so that we can kind of make sure, okay, the bomb is doing what we think it's going to do loading wise, and we can quantify the loading on the wall. And then we also put accelerometers, which measure the acceleration. And we put uh, displacement gauges that measure the displacement versus time. So we can characterize how the wall behaved as well. And then we also do high speed cameras, which produce really cool videos, but also are informative as well. It's amazing. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be working? Um, with the military in that realm of engineering. So that includes both how you got interested in engineering in the first place and how you got to where you are now from that. Sure. Um, so when I was in fourth grade, I really liked math. And I think I started to really like science around the same time. And I told my parents, I really like math and science. And they said, oh, you should be an engineer. So, okay, I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, so then in high school, I was kind of on the path of, okay, I should be an engineer because they like math and science. Um, but I still didn't really know what that was. And my high school didn't have any engineering classes. So I was fortunate enough to go to this um, engineering camp, both one through the Girl Scouts and one that was independent of Girl Scouts. And it was at a, a college in Missouri where it was four high school students and they showed you all the different types of engineering you could study at their college and like what that meant. Um, I do think the Girl Scouts opportunity, it was when I was younger, but it was all women. And, you know, so when I got to college, I was a little like, why are there are no women in my classes because I thought it was like a woman thing to be an engineer, which I think is pretty cool thinking that growing up. Um, and I really liked those camps. I thought it was really cool. So then when I was in college, I um, was able to major in engineering and my first internship, I kind of just applied through the college's like career website or something. Um, and I wanted to I went to college at Swarthmore College in Philly, and I wanted to go back home for the summer so I didn't have to, like, look for a place to stay. I could stay with my parents. So I saw this cool internship through the Department of Homeland Security at a national lab that was near my parents, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And the description, I thought I wanted to do environmental engineering. Um, but the description was really cool. It was studying blast through tunnels and like how blast waves propagate. I was like, I didn't know I could get paid to do this. <laughs> um, so I went to Lawrence Livermore National Lab. I did an internship and I felt like everyone was 
really nice and patient with me because this was my first time in this field and I learned a lot and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to work for work that supports our nation and it's really exciting and I really like blast and I, I didn't know much about it even after that internship, but I kind of had like sort of an understanding and I was like, I want to be an expert in this. That's an awesome story. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the education side? Um, so one is your experience pursuing an engineering degree at a more liberal arts heavy school. And also if you could talk about why you chose to pursue both a master's and a PhD. Sure. Um, so when I was applying to colleges, I didn't really know. I thought I wanted to do engineering. My parents were a little weary because they were both lawyers and they didn't really know where this is coming from. <laughs> they thought I didn't really understand it, which to be honest, even at that point still, I didn't. Um, and so they were helping me find schools where I could um, apply into the engineering major, but without having, <clears throat> without having to go to a separate engineering school. And I remember when I toured Columbia, if I went to their engineering school my freshman year and didn't like it, I would have to reapply with the general population for their general liberal arts program. And that was something that my parents were like, this is, you don't know if you want engineering, so make sure you're, you know, keeping your options open. Um, and Engineering was hard, um, it was challenging. And I think something that I struggle with, and I think a lot of people, not just women struggle with this, but I think it's more common with at least my women colleagues is imposter syndrome. I kind of always felt like I didn't really belong here, but I was still doing well in class. But you know, oh, this guy like made a robot when he was three years old. And I was like, oh, I played soccer when I was three. That doesn't really help me. Um, but I, I kept doing well. And that was kind of like a confidence boost. And I enjoyed the classes. Um, and it wasn't like I was getting a 4.0, but I was, you know, doing well and um, really liking it. And I actually double majored in economics and general engineering at Swarthmore because you can't pick a specific engineering type. And it was nice because they made you take like an electrical engineering class, a civil engineering class, a structural engineering class. So it was nice to like see the different types. Um, but because I double majored in econ, I was my senior year applying for finance jobs. I was applying for master's programs. And I thought that I didn't really like research, which is very ironic because that's what I do now. <laughs> um, I thought it was kind of boring. And then, and I didn't want to get my PhD. I just wanted to take more classes, learn more about environmental or structural engineering, and then kind of get out of school after that. Um, but then I went to UC San Diego to tour um, with a professor there that someone at Lawrence Livermore National Lab suggested I uh, studied with. And when he, Professor uh, Gilbert Hagemeyer, told me the kind of work that they did, 
They had a, a blast generator, so it's simulating blast-like loads. They had a huge earthquake table. They did tons of work with the Air Force and the Navy on blast mitigation. It's like, this sounds amazing. <laughs> um, I think this is what I want to do. So I applied for the PhD program there, and thankfully I got accepted and I got a fellowship to go there. Um, I ended up just getting a master's there because he ended up retiring and he had a student that was a professor at Georgia tech. And I actually met her while I was there and while she was a postdoc. So she was a very new professor at Georgia tech doing the same research that I was doing with the professor at UC San Diego. So, um, I guess initially I was thought I wanted to just get my PhD once I decided to make that choice. And then I ended up getting my master's and PhD. So I transferred to Georgia tech and was able to get a master's at UC San Diego. Um, and I hope I answered your question. <laughs> yeah. I just want to get the timeline, right? So you were doing, um, your blast work at Lawrence Livermore during or immediately after undergrad. So that internship was after my junior year, uh, after my junior year of college. And so I had one more year left of college and my advisor at Lawrence Livermore, my mentor, he said that I should, I should get my master's or my PhD and I should consider talking to Gilbert Hagemeyer at UC San Diego because they'd done work with him before. And it was actually really nice because I worked with um, two people at Lawrence Livermore, a male and a female. And the female had told me her horror story of a grad program where she had a guy who had never graduated a female before. She didn't really think anything of it. And he did not work well with females. Like his advice was like, you should smile more when you're defending. <laughs> that doesn't really go over well. Um, so they had worked with Gil and they knew that he had women students before. So they were like recommending him. Um, so then my senior year is when I decided to apply for grad school. And I was applying to a bunch of places, but I really only applied to UC San Diego because of the recommendation from Lawrence Livermore. Awesome. That's a really clean story you did blast engineering at Lawrence Livermore in the end of your undergrad years, then worked uh, doing it at your PhD. And that led, I assume, pretty directly into doing um, similar work for the military. Yeah. So um, my, pr my project, my thesis for my PhD was looking at um, carbon fiber reinforced polymer retrofits for reinforced concrete walls for blast. So I got to study, um, I got to learn about blast as a part of my master's in PhD work. And I actually, um, while I was at Georgia tech. So after I transferred to Georgia tech, I was there for a year and I, or maybe two years, one year. And I applied for a fellowship called smart science, mathematics, and research for transformation, I think is what it stands for. And it's with the DOD. So basically you apply, you say what, you know, what you're doing, what you want to do in five years and 10 years, why are you applying for this uh, fellowship? And then do you, any research DOD facility can select you to sponsor you. 
and Erdic selected me. So I was still doing my PhD work at Georgia Tech. They selected me and part of that fellowship is every year they pay for, because they pay for all of your schooling, um, every summer in between those years, you do an internship there and then you owe them a one-to-one um, ratio back. So I, they paid for two years of my PhD. So I owed them two years after working for them. And what was really cool is that I got to actually do my first real blast test as an intern through this fellowship. And I got to use that data for my dissertation. That's super handy. Um, Yeah, it was very nice. (laughs) uh, So finally, before we move on from talking about education, um, can you discuss a little bit just the differences between working in research in a university setting for your PhD versus a government or military lab? So I think my experience was a little unique where my advisor, both at UC San Diego and at Georgia Tech, um, a lot of their research was sponsored by government facilities. So they were kind of used to doing similar research as you would do in the government. Um, I do think though, for the dissertation um, and even a master's thesis, you're kind of required to jump down all the rabbit holes. So, um, and you're, you're required to kind of find some sort of, uh, contribution to this field where no one else has done this before. And you either prove that it can happen or doesn't happen. Um, and it's very meticulous and, um, Sometimes maybe people won't necessarily care about why you're going down this rabbit hole, but it's for the sake of science. I think I was kind of lucky where all those rabbit holes actually had um, important applications. And then I think for the government and military research, it was more, it has, it's more, so what? Like, okay, so you're doing this. Why? Who cares? How many lives are you saving? Are you saving money once you find this problem and if you kind of can't answer those questions right it's like well you can do this on your own time but uh you know the government's not going to pay for it all right thanks Mm -hmm. Uh, so now we're gonna transition to talking about what it's like to be a woman in stem so did you face any challenges as a woman in stem and particularly in such a male-dominated field um Yeah, so I think, uh, like I mentioned briefly before, the imposter syndrome, I think it was um, when I first got to Swarthmore, I, you know, was a kid from Oakland, California, going to this place where it was mainly preppy-ish people. (laughs) So um, that was like kind of imposter syndrome, not just because of being a woman or anything. And then on top of, I walked into a class and it was maybe five women out of 40 people. Um, That was kind of a shock to me. And I just remember um, kind of feeling like, and I don't know how much of this was like an inward thing, but kind of feeling like I was a joke. And uh, I didn't really want to talk too much because I was afraid if I said something wrong, I would further reinforce that I was silly and didn't belong there. Um, I also think it took 
a lot of um, time, and I think I finally reached this like maybe a year ago, <laughs> um, to like really just be comfortable with being myself and not having to pretend to be anybody else. Um, I remember I used to think that I had to be really stoic and like dressed in like boxy clothes to like fit in as an engineer. Um, but then I realized that I can just be me and prove myself through, you know, my work. Um, I think there's certain things that stick out, um, where, you know, I think sometimes you get told, I remember, um, Someone had asked me to do an internship and I told a kind of mentor-ish figure at the time about it. And they informed me that they think they asked me to do that just so they could look at me and not that I was qualified. <laughs> um, and I remember that being like a really big blow to my confidence that I thought I was building up at the time. Um, so there's just certain things like that. Like I've been the only woman in a room and I've asked, been asked uh, by like visitors coming into our job, like, oh, uh, could you get me some coffee? <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm not the one for that. So good luck. <laughs> uh, so just like stuff like that. Um, I generally feel like I've been pretty lucky where most of my like authority figures, like my official bosses and stuff have been have treated me like everybody else. Um, but I could see how, if that wasn't the case, it would be really challenging. And what would you say are the things that kind of helped you overcome imposter syndrome? Um, I think, well, I still think I'm struggling with imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, but I think what helps is, and I think I'm really lucky in this way. My mom is a lawyer and she went to Harvard Law when it was a male-dominated field, and she was a lawyer when it's a male-dominated field. So some of the things that I went through, like that comment about someone wanting to look at me, I could kind of talk to her about it, and she could kind of help me just mentally and emotionally get through it, and she could share her experiences so I didn't feel like I was alone in having those experiences. Um I also think that I'm all, I'm surrounded. One of my best friends is a software engineer and she has had similar experiences. So I think just knowing that everyone kind of feels like they have imposter syndrome helps. Cause it's like, well, I look at this guy or woman across the room. And if I think that they're also having imposter syndrome and I know that I respect them so much, maybe other people respect me too. That's really lovely. Um, our last question is, what are some goals or aspirations you have as you continue to further your career? Hmm, that's a big question. Um, I, I really love my job and I think I just want to continue to explore what my job has to offer and also as cliche as it sounds, what I have to offer my job. Um, I think there's a lot of tedious things that anybody has to do in their jobs. And I think the fact that I know it's going towards potentially saving somebody's life um, really makes it worthwhile. So I just want to keep um, working. I, I, 
I think I want to continue down uh, challenging myself as a researcher and an engineer and just kind of exploring whatever else there is to learn. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wise Spotlight series. Tune in next time to hear from more prominent women in the fields of science and engineering.